Welcome to another edition of the Data Dish podcast from the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition. I'm Matt Bragg, Director of Data and Policy at ISTC. Today on the show, we have another interview with one of our researchers to know. Uh, today, we sit down with Professor Lori Andrews. Uh, professor Andrews is a distinguished professor of law and director of the Institute of Science, Law, and Technology at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Professor Andrews' work is at the intersection of law and technology. Um, in the interview, we discuss her work in biotechnology and genetics, um, as well as um, her work in social media and privacy. So here's our interview with Professor Andrews. Uh, Lori Andrews, you are Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Institute of Science, Law, and Technology at the Illinois Institute of Technology's Chicago-Kent College of Law. Um, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. So um, I want to get into your research interests, and you're kind of at, a, at an interesting intersection between law and policy and um, science and innovation and technology. So um, first, I really want to get into kind of what your research interests are um, and then work our way back from that in terms of how you got interested in that and then sort of your career path to, to get into all that. Terrific. So I work on areas of law that haven't caught up with technology, which is a lot of law because, of course, science, innovation, technology look forward, the law looks backwards. So if right. there's a problem with the space shuttle, they look at cases that have to do with Model T cars and, and apply those precedents. So my entire career has been based on trying to get the law to look forward. I chaired a federal advisory commission to the Human Genome Project when that was going on, and we devoted 3 to 5% of the scientific budget to looking at what social and policy issues are up. So new technologies come out. They might be reproductive technologies or nanotechnologies or digital technologies. I've worked on all of those. And I look at the impact on individuals and relationships and communities hmm. and social in institutions such as insurers or employers and the impact on the law. And then I try to develop a forward-looking set of legal and policy guidelines. It's great fun. Um, I think in many instances, I've been like the Harvey Keitel cleanup character in Pulp Fiction, <laughs> where, you know, people do very innovative, crazy things. And then I'm called in after the fact to kind of clean up and say, well, who has the intellectual property rights? Or what happens when something goes wrong? And so that's part of why I'm trying to get the legal field to look forward in technology. So I'll get calls at home in my, you know, condo here in Chicago uh, that go like this. Um, I have a severed head in my hand. Uh, it's a really rich guy, and he wanted it reattached to a healthy body uh, when it came in. And what are the legal rights of a severed head? And who inherits the estate? And, you know, who pays for the health care? And so... <sighs> In lots of areas, from biotechnology to uh, police use of, uh, of digital technologies and social media, I've been kind of a go-to person that people call with legal issues where their hospital counselor, general counselor, city counsel um, just haven't faced it before. Right. So kind of how did you get into that, I suppose? what, what In your career path, you know, when did you decide that this kind of intersection between all these issues was, was where you wanted to focus? 
Um, even as far back as law school, I took some courses in the medical school at Yale as well, not wanting to be a doctor, but trying to understand new technologies that were coming online. I took the bar exam the day Louise Brown, the first test tube baby, was born. Mm -hmm. And I'd written about these issues in law school. And so at the first conference in the world, which happened to be in Germany, on reproductive technologies, I was an invited speaker. And so I got into these issues very early. And I must say, kind of as a woman, uh, I probably it probably escalated my career to do things in the innovation space because if I'd gone into estates and trust law, there'd be generations of male lawyers ahead of me. But when this happened, it meant that Congress called me when they needed someone to speak about new genetic and reproductive technologies. The White House called me when Dolly the Sheep was cloned to, uh, because President Clinton wanted a legal opinion about whether he could ban the cloning of human beings. Hmm. So um, innovation is a really interesting space. I teach a law of social media class that looks at laws related to YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and employers' use of your digital doppelganger to make decisions or insurers or police department tracking you, your geolocation and what you put on your uh, Twitter account. Um, and, and these are the things where uh, people who are coming into the field with some background in digital technologies who want to work on the policy issues can readily find jobs because really they're the first wave of lawyers who know about this. Right. And I want to get into some of that social media stuff because obviously it's very timely in, in the moment that we're living in. Um, but first I have some stats on you um, and then we'll... Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> and then we'll um, um, talk about some of, of the work that you've done. Um, so you've written more than 150 articles on biotechnology, genetics, and social networks, um, as well as 11 nonfiction books, including I Know Who You Are, um, and I saw what you did, social networks, and the death of privacy. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the genetics piece of that first. And you mentioned kind of, you know, being a, um, an advisor to the White House, and um, I think you've been an, an advisor to Congress and the World Health Organizations and, and a bunch of other, um, you know, bodies on these things. Um, so I'm interested just kind of in the work that you did and then sort of how you see that, because it seems to me at least like it's not um, – you know, a subject that, that we have uh, finality on, right? It's still an ongoing uh, yeah. discussion in terms of the law. So There, there are lots of issues still around um, genetics. I just got an email on the way here from a, a TV station wanting to know about uh, forensic investigations that try to track down killers by looking at DNA on Ancestry.com and other uh, yeah. websites. Well, the Golden State Killer, right? Yeah. That was um, So lots of current issues. We have gotten a little ways. It took 17 years to get a law passed saying that employers and health insurers shouldn't discriminate against you as a healthy person now just because your genome suggests you mm. might have a higher risk of cancer later. Yeah. Uh, so there are tons of problems in almost every area of, of law. Um, I think Forensics, there are still issues. There are still issues around, I think a big one right now is, do parents who have a great deal of rights over reproductive decisions, right to gain access to contraception or to abortion, do they have a right to genetically engineer 
their children. Um, with in vitro fertilization, we now have embryos existing in test tubes. And so if a parent wants to put the gene for the running speed of a cheetah into their child, mm-hmm. uh, do they have that right? Does any law ban it? And so I kind of come along often where innovators want to do certain things, and then are surprised to find that there might be some law in existence, like bans on embryo research in 10 states, hmm. uh, that uh, could you know, cause an issue for them. So part of what I do is try to uh, open up uh, you know, some domains where research has been closed off, mm-hmm. Um, for example, a law in Illinois, when in vitro fertilization started, said that any doctor who uh, fertilizes a woman uh, woman's egg in vitro has custody of that child for purposes of an 1877 child abuse statute. So, <laughs> no doctors in Illinois wanted to do that. They didn't know what it meant. You know, mm-hmm. like not all embryos become children. Not uh, you know, and and they couldn't tell. Like, what is it? you know, to do child abuse of an embryo. I mean, with existing children, it's like you don't feed it right, you don't educate it right, Mm -hmm. you don't give it good health care, but what does that mean in terms of an embryo? So I worked uh, on a case here, a pro bono case, that got that law, um, you know, overridden so people could work more in that genetics and reproductive technology area. Mm -hmm. Um, I also worked on a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court to invalidate the patent on the breast cancer gene because companies were, you're not supposed to be able to patent products of nature, and mm-hmm. companies were patenting genes and then saying to every other researcher, no, we own that disease. You can't do research on it. Well, and then they had a monopoly to charge whatever they wanted uh, for uh, uh, a test of that gene. And so some people weren't able to get health care that they needed where their doctor could have told them the sequence of their gene, but that sequence was patented. So I've done a lot of research pro bono and pro bono work around uh, encouraging innovation. At the same time, I've studied the negative aspects of certain technologies. So uh, a recent law review article of mine that just came out last week is about medical apps. And we studied Hmm. hundreds of medical apps. Medical apps having to do with diabetes, medical apps for eating disorders and bipolar disorder and suicide prevention. And we asked the question, um, you know, how do they protect your privacy, if at all? And it turned out that like only 19% of the medical apps even had privacy policies. Hmm. For the psychiatric apps, it was about 38%. So if you're a consumer choosing among the 250 different diabetes apps you could monitor, you could use to monitor your health. You know, how do you know if your data is going to be sold? And it turned out that 80% of medical apps and 69% of psychiatric apps actually do send that private health information, you know, where you're thinking of committing suicide or your diabetes isn't kept in check, to data aggregators who can then market it to employers and insurers. So, you know... In addition to fostering innovation in some senses, we want to make sure it um, is appropriate for mm-hmm. the consumer. Sure. Another thing we found was that some of these medical apps were badly designed, um, and, and they're used to take the place of doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually, 
you know, you can find apps that diagnose whether you have skin cancer by taking a picture of the mole and comparing it to databases of, of cancers. Um, the Federal Trade Commission got involved because it turned out they weren't very good and they were missing diagnoses of actual cancers. And then we found some, like a diabetes app that told you how much insulin you should take based on, you know, your diet and your exercise and all that at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. But it told you a different number depending on whether you were holding your phone in a horizontal or vertical position. Well, that shouldn't make a difference. You shouldn't <laughs> be told to take like five times the amount of the drugs. Yeah. And then there was a whole set of apps that were supposed to tell you whether your drugs would interact in a fatal way. And only 25% of the time did they actually tell you that. So people relying on that might be harmed. Wow. So innovation's great, but we need to make sure that there's quality innovation, mm-hmm. and that's part of what I've been doing. Yeah. And, and I've been doing it in a very interdisciplinary way, working with psychologists and uh, computer programmers and engineers and so forth. Yeah. And you bring up the, the issue of personal data, and, you know, this is a, an age where we've seen some of the big social media companies also, you know, get in, get in trouble for that. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, the current state of that issue? And then, um, you know, you've already talked about some of it, but some of the work you've done maybe specifically with some of the social media uh, companies and, and kind of where that is today. Yeah, I think that... Um so you hear a lot of people say privacy is dead. I mean, look at mm-hmm. the fact that I'm posting every two seconds on my Facebook page. You know, I'm going to the doctors. I'm bringing it with my boyfriend. You know, mm-hmm. all these different things. And so, um, you know, many of the leaders, like from Sun Microsystems, other places, just flat out have said privacy is dead. Get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think privacy is still important. We It's a constitutional right, the right to privacy. We actually achieve intimacy by parceling out information to others, and there's a lot of backlash that can occur when your information gets out. For Mm -hmm. example, some life insurers now um, are deciding before they uh, underwrite life insurance for you, they will look at your social media page, Mm -hmm. and these things are supposed to count against you. You're an avid reader. You commute to work, you eat fast food, and uh, you have a friend who's a skydiver. Well, I do, like, all those things. You know, like, why the no- – I mean, I've written 14 books. I'd love everybody to be an avid reader. Mm-hmm. But their notion is, oh, you must be sedentary if you're an avid reader. They don't say, are you listening to audiobooks while you run? Are you on a treadmill while you're reading? Um, and if you're in a graduate school program, whether it's about technology, right. you're reading a lot. Sure. Um, and then having a friend who's a skydiver. I have a friend who's a skydiver. I'd probably be too chicken to do it. It doesn't mean <laughs> that, uh, you know. So what we're seeing is that information is coming back to haunt people. Um, and many people think, oh, I haven't posted anything um, like naked hot tub photos on my Facebook page, so I should be okay. But even very seemingly hmm, unoffensive things can Mm -hmm. get people in trouble. About 30% of employers say they uh, won't hire you if you have a 
a glass of wine in your hand on your Facebook page. And you're, you're an adult. You should be able to drink, and yet that counts against you. Hmm. In one case, a woman uh, had a workplace accident. She needed a couple surgeries on her spine, and the judge actually said, oh, she's smiling in her MySpace photo, so she couldn't have been hurt that badly. Wow. So I, I think that there are a couple things. People may not realize how later judgments might be made against them in ways that harm them. Uh, one big law firm in Chicago fired a couple attorneys because of things that had been on their um, Facebook page six years earlier, wow. like lyrics that seemed to be misogynistic. Hmm. You know, so you think of all the things you might po- – oh, I really like this movie. Yeah. Well, in the movie, a cop gets shot, then I'm – you know, accused of a crime? Does the jury get that information? Does it make me seem um, like a horrible person? So we've got a couple things going on. So, so this relates to why I don't think privacy should be dead, <laughs> mm-hmm. that it's worth fighting for. And when I looked into it, it turned out for the past 150 years, every time there was a new technology that was able to garner more information about people, um, the community said privacy was dead, and it turned out that the law stepped in and protected privacy. Hmm. A great example is the Kodak camera, 1888. Before that, people used to have to go into a studio and they could control how they looked. Mm-hmm. Well, it came out, and anybody, the portable camera, anybody could take a picture of you. And there were actually op-eds in newspapers around the country from 1888 that said, have you seen the Kodak fiend? It can uh, catch you in an uncouth position in line at the post office, which is sort of like tagging on Facebook. And instead of just saying, well, privacy's dead, I don't control my image anymore, states actually pass laws at the state level giving people the right to privacy, the right to own their image for commercial purposes, um, a right to not be portrayed in a false light, you know, like if you change the picture where it looked like I was going into, uh, you know, adult bookstore as opposed mm-hmm. to kindergarten, you know, that sort right. of um, thing. So uh, it's really just so interesting to see this play out now in every aspect of a of a person's life. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested... Um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up fake news, right? This has been something, obviously, in the 2016 election and um, since it's been something that, you know, companies have been trying to combat. And, um, you know, I think there's maybe some laws that are starting to catch up. I'm wondering if you have a read on that and, and yeah, if you've looked no, into that. it's so hard. And, and it's – I think people were, sh- you know, shocked by Cambridge Analytica. I was not yeah. <laughs> because I wrote a book in 2012 that showed – I mean, two things. First of all, um, the Obama's initial election, I mean, that campaign was a genius about social media and contacting people and using data in all sorts of ways, even just at the voting level, you know, what precincts needed more pencils or Mm -hmm. had too big a line. So, I mean, maybe a positive use of data. And then it turned out two years later, there was a Republican backlash. So this is, we're talking about the 2010 elections, and they purchased information uh, from a company called Rapleaf, which allowed you to you know, find people who maybe would more tend to be Republican or who went to Bible clubs and so forth, and reach out to them individually with a different political message 
than what you'd see on TV. So I could tell five different people, make it appear like I was a candidate just for them, even if I was saying inconsistent things. And there was no way really to monitor these individual emails based on social media information. So it was very much like a Cambridge Analytica in the 2010 election. So I find it a little suspect that Facebook was like, oh, we had no idea this was happening mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, there are actually getting to be state laws about um, negative tweets, like one candidate against another, about how um, you can't tweet in the last several days before the election because there's no time to combat fake news or a really negative thing hmm. uh, back. Um, it, you know, so clearly we haven't learned how to, at the giant society-wide level, protect elections and protect, mm-hmm. you know, fake news. I guess the the original hope of the internet was like democracy everywhere because we'd all have a standard set of information and we could there'd be transparency and we'd be getting cutting-edge news from around the world and really know what was going on in these remote areas where we hadn't had a, as much news coverage. But as it turns out, we get a real narrow slice of the news um, depending on what we've previously looked for. Mm-hmm. Like at one point when I looked up a royal wedding, that was a disaster because all news I got after that was about, you know, clothing and, you know, those sorts of gone from my, you know, news feed were things that had to do with um, international affairs or Chicago news or things like that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned sort of working to make the law look forward, Mm -hmm. right, in terms of, you know, upcoming, you know, innovations or things that kind of, you know, push the limits, I I suppose, of the law. So what are, you know, this is probably a tough question for any of us to answer, but what are some of the things that you see on the horizon that, you know, the law is going to have to kind of adapt to and and adjust um, here in the coming decade or so? Well, there are safety issue around some nanotechnologies, Mm. even with respect to their development in laboratories, because the traditional, say, mask or other things that you would use to protect your graduate students as they're doing this research are not good enough. Some of the um, intellectual property laws may need to be uh, changed, you know, in terms of um, already people have tried to get patents on human embryos with certain traits. Um, and so, you know, things things like that. Or intellectual property, nanotechnology creates an issue for that because intellectual property is what's called a strict liability system. That means um, if I invent a machine and then you, two weeks later, claim to have invented that machine, the assumption is you didn't, you just copied me, you Mm -hmm. infringed. And it doesn't matter if you independently came up with it. So anybody kind of making or using the machine I patented is guilty of infringement. Well, say we have these nanorobots that are clearing up plaque in my, you know, in, in my blood system, in my arteries. And then I sneeze on you. And you, of course, then have them in your system. Hmm. And they may not be doing you any good, yeah. or they may not be doing you, or they may in fact be doing you harm, but you would owe a royalty on them because you are now using them. So I think the real boundaries are around things like robots with consciousness 
or um, genetically enhanced, um, you know, lower species. You know, if you try to combine uh, man and chimp for a subhuman to do menial tasks. Um, I once was contacted by uh, a scientist who wanted to put the gene to photosynthesize in human embryos so we wouldn't need to um, get our food, you know, eat food. We would get our energy from the sun. And, hmm. you know, I mean, I love restaurants around <laughs> Illinois. We are a great food place, right. food producer, food that, you know. Um, but that was the issue. And I asked my law students, well, when do human rights click in? Is it if you're half plant or quarter plant or half animal or not? And uh, one of my students said, listen, if it walks like a man, quacks like a man, and photosynthesizes like a man, it's a man. So I think our biggest issues are on boundary issues, mm-hmm. boundaries between what machine learning is doing in medicine and what doctors are doing between what is robotics, what is human, what are species anymore now that it might be it's possible to breed across species boundaries. Yeah, kind of at the fringes of science, mm-hmm. right? Right, yeah, although they're very much in the middle of things and people mm-hmm. are doing every one of those for potential health benefits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm curious, I mean, you're director of the um, Institute for Science, Law, and Technology there at IIT. Um, so I'm curious, you know, universities' role in this and law schools' role in this, right? Yeah. You've got this, you know, the intersection between law and science and innovation, um, you know, as an organization like ours that works with universities. I'm just curious what you see as the role for universities and law school and kind of how, you know, we can best, you know, amplify um, um, mm-hmm. those, those efforts. Yeah, so this Institute for Science, Law, and Technology is a university-wide effort. And and so we can do things like, you know, uh, bring together people on projects from different disciplines, engineering, so forth. And, and sometimes we come up with our own projects. Sometimes something will happen like a country will say, hey, our hospital's been decimated. Can you uh, help us leapfrog to the next level by... Um, designing more consumer-oriented technologies for Hmm. diagnosis and so forth. So I think that having this history of interdisciplinary work is, you know, makes IIT really strong in this way. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that's been so great is the um, IPROs, these interdisciplinary research efforts where um, either from an outside source or generated by themselves, uh, students get credit for coming up with a a new technology that meets a particular need. Hmm. And, you know, and so what's great about that is, say, they do something in telemedicine. Well, they could just develop it on their own as engineers and computer science people, but um, it can be a stronger product if you also have you know, like psychologists involved with, okay, what is this interface like right. and are people actually going to use it mm-hmm. or not? And law students involved to say, well, you may have, you know, developed the greatest telemedicine system, but it's never going to get reimbursed or it's going to run into this problem with mm-hmm. um, 
you know, sending medical information across state lines without privacy protections and that. Mm -hmm. So I think we've been, you know, for years offering students the opportunity to be involved in these little clusters um, where they then do something that is actually a very practical and good innovation Mm -hmm. with a team not just from their discipline and with, you know, the possibility of, um, you know, having it solve a real-life problem. Another cool thing we have is every state um, has one place that's called a patent hub, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office mm-hmm. um, decides on it. And Chicago Kent College of Law at IIT is the patent hub for mm-hmm. Illinois. And that means that inventors who can't afford a lawyer on their own but might have some interesting idea can come and talk to um, our students and the director of that. And if they have a really good idea that seems patentable, um, we will hook them up with a pro bono lawyer who's a regular, usually highly paid patent lawyer. And that's been fun because some of those patents have already come through. We've been doing this for about two, three years now, and people are getting patents. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, in the innovation space that we work in, that kind of interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. um, you know, studies thing is becoming so much more popular, whether it's between, you know, things like computer science and business and kind of, you know, when you're creating a startup or an innovation, you kind of want to combine all those things very early on, right, to kind of have that proof of concept, you know, can we get this off of the ground, not just from a science standpoint, but from a business standpoint. So I think you know, incorporating law into that makes a lot of sense too, right? Because it's, you know, talk about proof of concept. If you're doing research or starting a business and, you know, from a law point of view, it's like, well, you're going to have huge challenges as soon as you start, right? Mm-hmm. It's great to know that in that early stage before you, <laughs> you know, go Invest forward with in that. Invest in and go forward in a way that might create a liability that you hadn't intended or right. violate privacy in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Professor Laura Andrews, I, w- I want to thank you for coming on. Um, you're unique in that you were our only attorney on our list of uh, researchers to know. So um, it was great to have you on and that list. And am I list. your only mystery writer, too? Cause definitely. I, <laughs> I would, well, I shouldn't say definitely, but I would, I would suspect. Yeah. Yes, so uh, I actually do a series with a geneticist main character to smuggle in the legal and scientific issues I care about. Right. Like genetic discrimination and, Very cool. and, and so forth. And it, I've actually found that, um, you know, it's it's a... It's a better way to reach people than writing law mm-hmm. review articles. I have more uh, people more in the Senate and Congress articles. calling me up <laughs> when I've uh, raised an issue in a mystery book than when I've written a law uh, review article. So those are fiction books, but with some real world. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, very yeah, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, well thanks, thank you. Yeah. So much. Thanks again for, for being one of our researchers to know and, and joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Our thanks to Professor Andrews for coming on the show. Um, Again, she was one of our researchers to know. Uh, The complete list of those researchers can be found on our website, istcoalition.org. Be on the lookout for more interviews uh, with our researchers to know. Uh, But until next time, thanks for listening. Mm